Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses, as you know, is a call by the Apostle Paul that the people of Philippi um, follow their Savior in thinking of others, not themselves. Remember that? That's basic. It's a call to humility, a call to servanthood, a call to uh, not thinking more highly of yourself than you should, he says. And um, he offers them the Lord Jesus as an example of this. And we looked at that the last time I was here, which seems like four months ago instead of only, what, uh, three weeks ago? Whenever it was. And so we looked at that, and we looked at some of those key terms that describe what Christ did. And we, we looked at this theologically, because there's a lot of theology in that section. He emptied himself and took on the form of a man uh, and uh, did not consider equality with God to be something that would be grasped, held on to. And we concluded from a study of those key terms that the Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity who added to his deity humanity and came to earth. He did not regard that equality with the Father something to be held on to tightly. He surrendered it to accomplish the purpose of redemption. And it says that he emptied himself, and we explored what that means, that he emptied himself of his glory, not of any of his attributes. He just ceased to be God in the Incarnation. He emptied himself of his glory. And we talked a little about that. And then, because of his obedience to the Father, the Father then, at the after his death, burial, and resurrection, exalted him and gave him a name, and that at that name, every knee at one someday in the future, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. Amen. We didn't get, to, uh, we ran out of time, but there is a magnificent verse in Revelation chapter 5, and I just encourage you, if you have a full New Testament, to look over to that, which kind of illustrates, I think, what the Apostle Paul is getting at in that uh, wonderful verse, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11, uh, there, the uh, Apostle John is in the throne room of God. The Father is seated, the Son is seated, and uh, he writes. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the numbers of them were myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with, with a loud voice, singing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them singing, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. What Paul says in um, Philippians chapter 2 is already occurring in heaven. But there's coming a day when, and if you notice again that language in verse 13, every living creature, every created thing will be exalting and lifting up and honoring and praising the name of Jesus Christ. I can tell you right now with absolute certainty, the angels and all of those who have died and gone to be with the Lord, they're not up there in heaven debating, I wonder who Jesus is. 
Was he just a great teacher? Let's debate. Let's have a debate in heaven on that. Let's have a panel discussion on whether Jesus is just a great ethicist or whether he truly is who he said he is. That's not having a debate up there. They're worshiping him. They're exalting him. Paul is saying there's coming a day every created being will bow to Jesus Christ. That hasn't happened yet. But it will happen. And that's what Paul is saying. So, as he's offering this illustration of Jesus to buttress his call to live a humble, servant-oriented, thinking of others first kind of lifestyle, he states his premise. The way up in God's economy of things is down. Does that include all mankind yes. that has ever existed? Yes. Would that include Satan and his angels too? In the sense Are they, they created beings? Yeah. Yes. Many will bow out of loving obedience and adoration. Others will bow out of fear. Before the uh, last judgment what Revelation 20 talks about. See, the fact is that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. The challenge is not every human being acknowledges that, but there's coming a day when every human being will acknowledge that. Because they love him and honor him, because they recognize all that he's done for him, or for them or those who have for all of their lives rejected continually, constantly, and relentlessly the grace that God offers them. And they still will bow. And I, I think that's part of the events that surround the judgment seat of Christ. Do, we have, uh, do you have any figures of people that have come to Jesus Christ uh, through missionaries and testimonies and things like that, like at this time, I mean in 2014? I, I, I don't have, I mean I don't have numbers that I can roll off my yeah. tongue, Woody. Uh, there are a couple of things that are, uh, uh, we know for certain. Proportionately speaking and in real numbers, more people came to faith in Jesus Christ in the 20th century than at any time in human history. Amen. Uh, that the 20th century the, is also the century, the bloodiest century in human history. That's right, that's right. Uh, with two world wars, the Holocaust, and everything else, it was, you know, it's, it's a catastrophic uh, century. Uh, and that was this, after the century when everybody said, we, we had 100 years of peace after Napoleon's defeat, there will be no more wars. Things, we're reaching an, el an escalator of progress, things that couldn't get any better, and then World War I started. So. But yeah, so I mean, Woody, I don't, I, I can't roll the figures I, off, but. Sometimes um, I feel like, like we're not building, you know, uh, maybe, you know, with all the ISIS and all these other people uh, that are, you know, become terrorists and killing Christians and, and banning missionaries and things like that. I wonder if we, I know there was a time when we could, when we could say that, you know, the missionaries have brought just many in this sure. country and to Jesus Christ. And 
I haven't heard much of that lately. Well, it, yeah, it depends on uh, if if you watch the news, you won't hear those reports. Right. Or you read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, you won't necessarily hear those reports. But I mean, there are what I, I can direct you to those. But there are a number of websites which do uh, kind of report on uh, the uh, where I'm trying to think how to say it, where the Church of Christ is growing the fastest in Africa. The continent of Africa is where the Church of Christ is growing the fastest. It's dizzying in its proportions. It's, it's amazing to find it over there, you know. And you would think with our senses and our ability of the United States and around the world, we have poverty embracing Christ even more. It's, I think yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. You know, you can gather more of his disciples than anywhere yeah. else. Um, Asia is uh, the second in terms of the region of the world. And China, of course, uh, even the repressed church is still growing significantly in China. Uh, so, I mean, um, worldteam.org reports on some of this. All right, now, what I want to do is now go to verse 12 and start. Uh, and the way I've organized the notes, if you're following on that, would be at page 18, page 13. Because as Paul, as the Apostle Paul has called on the folks at Philippi to adopt this lifestyle, thinking more highly of others than you think of yourself. Don't think of yourself type of call, offering Jesus. How then does that affect us? How does that affect our relationship? How does that affect our relationship with one another? And so he focuses on, um, in verse 12 and verse 13, one of the most important two verses, I think, in the Scripture, certainly in the New Testament, on what is God doing in your life, and what is your responsibility. So then, brethren, or my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For, or you could translate that because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work or to do of his good pleasure. All right. Now, what you see here is you see the command. I want to get to this in just a minute. But you see the command. I'm going to pretend this is a coin. The one side of the coin is we are to work out our <coughs> salvation. How? With fear and tremble. The other side of the coin. Because God is at work. Two ways. <coughs> to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, the word that he uses is we work out our salvation. In the Greek language, the word is soterion. And in the New Testament, that word is used of 
justification or sanctification or glorification. Same word is used in one of these three ways. So when we look at verse 12 and you see the term salvation, we have to figure out in context which one of these is he talking about. Now, so far, did I lose you or are you with me? If, if I've lost you, let me know I've lost you. Tell me to say this again. Say it again? Yes. All right. Now, this is verse 12 and verse 13 in a magnificent, beautiful diagram that you probably can't even read. But pretend this is the coin, okay? And any coin has two sides. Side says, side one says, work out your salvation with fear and trouble. Okay? This is verse 12. Verse 13, the other side of this coin, because, and there is a connection, this is the statement, this is the reason. Why do we work out our salvation for entrenchment? Because God is at work in our lives to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, when Paul uses in verse 12 the term salvation, the Greek word for that is soterion, we know that in the New Testament that word is used for either justification or sanctification or glorification. Our job now, because we're exegeting scripture, we're doing our Bible study, we're trying to figure out exactly what this is teaching us. And you and I are doing this together. Okay? We are, we are working out. Working out our salvation. Which one of the three is this referred to? Well, this is how you would go about that. Work out your justification. I would think all three of them. That's not would, good would be said. Not what? That's not a good way to conclude that. It can't be all three of these. It's sanctification, is <laughs> Justification, this is, I'm defining the three here. Justification is being saved from the guilt and judgment for sin. Sanctification is to be saved from the power of sin. Glorification is to be saved from the future. Glorification of the presence of sin. This is future. This is when you receive a glorified, resurrected body. Okay? Justification is an event in our life. Sanctification is the process. This is the process. Is this referring, work out your glorification when you receive your resurrected, glorified body? Does that make sense? That doesn't make sense. Work out your justification with God when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and God, because of your faith, declares you to be righteous. That's an event. Does that make sense here? No. No. No, because justification is by faith. That's the thesis of the book of Romans. Justification is by faith. Not a works, lest any man should boast. So if justification is by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast, work out doesn't make sense either. So what is it? Process. It's this. Work out your sanctification. This verse, verse 12, these verses, verse 12 and verse 13, is one of those two verses, one of the most significant summaries of sanctification you can find in Scripture. 
So, I put my faith, I put my faith in Christ. What's my assignment for the rest of my life? Am I passive in my pursuit of Christ? No. Do I just sit back and no. kick my shoes no. off and my okay, God, you've justified me. Now from here on out, I'm just going to sit here and passively watch you make me whole. Or is it saying that we are to be passionate activists pursuing the holiness that should characterize our lives? Well, obviously, I stacked the deck the way I said that. But we're to be active. And this is what it's saying. Work out your sanctification. This process of God delivering you from the power of sin in your life with fear. And the word fear is always a worship word. It's always a worship word. With worshipful adoration and dependence. Why do I do that? Verse 13, because God is already at work in your life. In two areas. In your will and in your action. So to make it really, really almost crass, we work because God is working. It's not either or, it's both and. Now this coin is the coin of sanctification. One side of the coin is I am passionately pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience. Because He is at work in my life, working on my will and working on my actions. I passionately pursue him because he's passionately pursuing me in this process of sanctification. Again, that fear and trembling. I don't think I quite have that. Could you just touch on that again one more time? Yeah, you bet. Fear, <coughs> fear and trembling, Woody, are um, fear take them one at a time. Fear is always a worship word in the scriptures. Um, it can mean, all of a sudden I'm really getting warm, it can mean um, where you cower in fear, like a little child. You know what I mean? It can mean, but normally it doesn't. It's uh, Solomon in the Old Testament writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, what does that mean? It's the worshipful, reverential awe of God. Who he is, what he stands for, what he's doing is the beginning of a wise life. Understand who God is, what he's doing, why he loves you, etc. That's the beginning of a wise life. So you're working out your sanctification with fear, a worshipful, reverential awe of God. Not because you're afraid of me, as a sort of Damocles over your head. I'm going to slam you if you don't get in line. That's not, that's not God. That's not the way God does it. And he's not hammering us into submission. What he's saying to is, is, I'm offering you everything in my grace. Pick up the gift by faith. 
you pick up the gift by faith. You begin a life with him. And now that your life is one of reverential awe and devotion and adoration of him, and trembling in the sense that you understand who he is and who I am in relation to him. And the amazement that he wants to have a relationship with me. That's, and it's just, you see that in the Psalms, many of them written by David, just absolutely standing in awe and amazement that God even cares about him. Psalm chapter 8. God, who am I that you would care about me? David writes in Psalm 8. Why are you interested in me? And the answer is because I created you. I created you in my image, and I want to have a fellowship and a relationship with you. But it's got to be on my terms. And I have devised an entire plan because you are in rebellion against me as human, ring, human beings. I devised a whole plan for you to become righteous. And I will declare you righteous forever removing the guilt and judgment for your sin when you put your faith in unjustifying you. Then I will start the process of removing from your life the power of sin. And your role in that is obedience. Loving obedience to men. And I'm going to make it possible. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you the strength. I'm going to give you the enablement. You start to get the process. What do I have in this process? I don't do much except lovingly walk in obedience with him. And I learn that process. Okay? You're right. Would it be fair to ask if, well, would it, could you look at it this way that Fear, in the sense of worship of fear, has the same roots of fear of something ominous, sort of that case. But it becomes a, a worshipful fear when you realize, because it is fear of who God is, because His power is. But then faith would be faith in His grace and His love. Why he created you. Right, right. It's, that's part of that. As you study his word and study what he's doing, you, you kind of shift in a way from this, oh my goodness, he's so powerful. Look at, to, he wants this relationship. I understand his grace. I understand his love. I understand all that he's done. And I stand in amazement that he wants anything to do with me. But he does. That's the whole point. Why else would he have created this? That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's just, it's, the, the, I mean, I've been studying this stuff for over 35 years, and I still, when I start thinking in this area, I, I can't do anything but come back. This is absolutely amazing what God is doing. It's, it takes me back to Psalm 8. God, why are you interested in me? David asked her, why are you interested in me? Why do you care about me? I'm a little speck. Why do you? And, and the answer God says is, I created you. I created you in my image. And I don't have a relationship with you. You are my image bearer. And I love you. For God so loved the world that he gave it to me in John 3.16. And the more you start processing all this, the more you say, this is really amazing. And so the response to that is, Fear and trembling, but in a positive, worshipful sense. Not trembling, oh, he's going to smack me in the head with a two-by-four if I don't get in line. That isn't the perspective God wants us to have. 
It doesn't mean he won't discipline us. But his, I mean, his, his job, that's wrong way to put it, his goal is not to make our lives miserable. His goal is always shaping and molding us into the image of his son. Amen. Because we're going to spend eternity with him. Yes. Uh, oh, Fred. I didn't. I didn't know where I saw a hand. Um, yeah. Um, what is the benefit to us if we pursue this relationship with God, knowing what you've just laid out? What is a benefit? Because people could say. I receive Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I believe it. And that settles it. And I'm going to be in heaven. What's the benefit of this development process within our lives serving him? That you could, you could comment that we really... What do we get out of it? Selfishly, well, personally... Well, I mean, no, in, in 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 the spiritual sense, what do we you know, get from I mean, that? You do, obviously, it, it, you, you do have to answer that question. You have to say the promise of eternal life. I mean, that that's as important as anything else. But I think the um, the benefit, and oh my goodness, Fred, there's just so many ways I can answer that. But the benefit, primarily. The benefit primarily of this then connected with this. The event followed by the process is this phrase right here. We are delivered from the power of sin. Um, and then the consequence of that is as the power of sin is broken in our lives, then the joy and fulfillment that and purpose that comes from walking with God in fellowship, which is the main reason he created us in the first place, becomes very, very clear. But for so many people, before they can get to that point of the joy and blessing and benefit and purpose and fulfillment and meaning of life that comes, because God is our creator, God created me uniquely just like you created unique, uniquely for purpose, for a purpose that only eternity will make clear, you first of all have to have the power of sin broken in your life. A man who is thoroughly addicted, or a woman, but any a human being who's thoroughly addicted to drugs, and it's absolutely controlling every aspect of their life, they have to have that power broken before they can do anything else in life. God's grace will help them break that power. But as you, and that's why the Apostle Paul talks in Romans 6 and Romans 7, that, that what God's grace does is we accept that gracious gift by faith, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection by faith, that breaks the power of sin in our life. I mean, boom, it's broken. Now, the process of sanctification is beginning to understand what does that mean. And it, it I mean, it, it is, for some individuals, they come to faith in Jesus Christ and it's an instantaneous, unbelievable change in their life overnight. But for many, it, it's a process. It's a gradual process. Uh, and I think that's more the norm than, than, than it's the, the, uh, the abnormal. 
And I think then what you start to see is, is, is you see the Lord truly, truly, truly freeing you from these things. Then you begin to see and understand all of the purposes and meaning and joy of living. So, since we're in the 20th anniversary of my favorite movie, Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say. About. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Uh, in the book of Matthew, verse 20, I mean, uh, chapter 24, it says, There's no greater love than love God Himself, and the second greatest a man give his life down for his fellow man. Now, being it was Pentecost uh, Day yesterday, do you believe most of our servicemen? They die there or here, go to heaven. If they did not put their faith in Jesus Christ, no. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought. I wasn't sure, but they were giving their life for this country, for us, you know. But well, the way you ask that question, you stacked the deck. There was no way I could answer the question any other way than the way I answered the question. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Uh, but. Because what the Lord is asking, excuse me, what the Lord is, is doing there and that illustrates illustrating the principle. And that principle is, I am about to lay down my life for you. And the greatest, because he says, I now call you friend. This is in Matthew chapter 13. Because the greatest thing a person can do for a friend is to lay down your life for somebody. Call them friend. But Jesus is going beyond his friend. He is the Lord and Savior. And so it's an illustration. It's not something you care about. When somebody dies in a military conflict, therefore they go to heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's an illustration of um, what a person can do. But that act in itself is not something that's salvific, saves people. Now, I want to get, explore this a little more, okay? I'm not sure that, you know, as well read as you are and as knowledgeable as you, you are about his word, uh, I'm thinking that maybe <coughs> that we don't know. Maybe that person that laid down his life for his brother, threw himself on the grenade and saved, you know, six guys, maybe God will decide, hey, we're going to have you up here. What do you think? It would depend. It, 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 Woody, I can't answer a question like that. It depends on that person's heart yeah. and their relationship with the Lord. Many, many men and women who have done sacrificial things like that have already made their peace with the Lord. But I mean, that act in and of itself is not an act which is going to save them. But, it's, but it says in there, you quoted the lay down their life. Else. That's what they've done. I don't know. See, I, I don't want to get into the debate. Well, if you go back and read the passage, Jesus is, I said Matthew 13, I meant John 13. Jesus is using that as an illustration, not as an axiom. You want to be saved, go lay down, go, go <laughs> save somebody by throwing yourself in a grenade. That's not what he's saying. He's using it as an illustration of what he is about to do. I am about to lay down my life for the entire human race. And just, and just as a friend will do that for someone else, I am doing it as the Lord and Savior of the human race. 
So he's applying it to, he's using it as an illustration to get you to the point of what he is going to do for the entire human race on the cross. Doesn't he make reference somewhere about laying down your life for him? Yes. Yes. It's the in the uh, in the Beatitudes and Matthew five and so yes, that's right. In effect, saying that.